And I was raving on and on and on. And then I went, oh, my God, I'm a prepper. Because a prepper is preparing for the future. That's all that that means. And do I think about the future? Yes. Do I prepare for that? Yes. Therefore, hello, I'm happy to be a prepper. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortito and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Shani Graham. I first learned of Shani after watching her TED Talk from 2013, Take a Street and Build a Community. Shani spoke about the wonderful community that she had helped to develop on a small street in Fremantle, WA. I was so inspired and thought one day I would like to talk to this person. And now I have, and what a great conversation it was. Shani was born in Jamaica but raised in Canada by Australian parents. She moved to Australia and became a teacher where she worked with students with disabilities before becoming a school principal. Shani and her partner Tim were going through issues of their own, and while exploring their own unsustainable pathway, they realised that the world could not continue on its current path either. Shani left teaching, completed a Living Smart course, and opened a sustainable bed and breakfast business called The Painted Fish on Hulbert Street. This led to actually running regular Living Smart courses, gardening days and tours of the property. In 2008, Shani was instrumental in the creation of the Hulbert Street Sustainable Festa, an event to encourage community, sustainability and resilience in Perth suburbs. Shani now focuses her time on her business called Ecoburbia. Shani and Tim have since moved to a larger property 15 minutes outside of Fremantle where they have transformed the large house into six self-contained living spaces with shared facilities complete with veggie gardens, chickens, goats, a beehive and so much more. During my conversation with Shani, we discussed goats, resilience, being a prepper, leaving a stable job to venture into business, environmentalism, finding your circle of action, education, mental health, having fun, gardening, and so much more. Once again, thank you for listening to Moments of Clarity. It is an honour to have so many people interested in the conversations I am having, and I am thrilled to bring you another one today. So without further delay, I bring you Shani Graham. Shani, welcome to Moments of Clarity. So happy to be here. Uh, it's, it's brilliant to have you. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a very long time now, so it's a thrill to to have you here, even though we are over the Zoom airwaves from Perth to Melbourne. Well, it's an advantage of the COVID world, isn't it? We can actually connect in some ways with wider wider group of people than we would have before. Absolutely. I would have had to fly you over otherwise. So, um, <laughs> oh dear, I missed out on that, didn't I? <laughs> no, no worries at all. So today, I mean, just before you've joined us, you were out doing something that I found quite interesting. You were out walking your goats. Is that right? Yes. Well, we have a bit of a routine here. It's like a mini farm. So half past four is milking time during the winter. So they both get a milk and a bit of a feed and then just like a dog, I suppose, they need a little bit of exercise and a little bit of sort of intellectual stimulation. So we wander around the streets with them. Today was a short walk because it started raining halfway. So they sort of half walked, half ran with me all the way home so they could get out of the rain. But it's actually a really nice way to finish the day off. I know once the goats are done, I'm not allowed back on the computer, no more gardening work, and it's time to sort of make dinner and settle in for the evening. 
Where are you living now that you are able to have goats and how long have you had goats for? Well, it's an interesting story, actually. We live in a suburb called Beaconsfield. It's about it's seven minutes by bike from the centre of Fremantle. We're up a hill, so it takes us seven minutes to get there and 15 minutes to get home. We've had goats before, but we didn't really tell anyone. Um, and so when we moved up here, we thought, let's see if we can make them legal. And luckily, our council is really open to, I suppose, looking at things that are a bit out of the box at, at that higher echelon level, I suppose. Um, and so we, I approached the mayor. Our mayor has a mayor in the square question time where you go in and ask him things. So I went and said, what's the story with goats? He said, oh, I don't know. So he put me on to the head of health and the head of health said, oh, I don't know. No one's ever asked. We don't have a policy. So um, he, it goes to state legislation in that instance. And there's a policy on large animals and it outlines lots of really sensible things about what their stable should be like, how far they should be from a house, how you control vermin and flies and how you should feed them, et cetera, et cetera. And realistically, the only one we couldn't meet is they're meant to be 20 metres from any other house. So what this guy said was, look, if you can talk to your neighbours and get an agreement that if there's an issue, they'll come to you and not hassle the council, then I'll grant you a licence. So we have the only legal goat licence, stable licence in Fremantle. The price of it hasn't changed since 1982. It cost me $26.50 <laughs> per goat. I just paid it the other day. And, um, yeah, and we're allowed to have them now. So and they get every now and again, actually they haven't been for a few years, every now and again a health inspector would come and have a little look and go, that's great. But it's a response from a very flexible council that is willing to kind of work through the red tape to be able to do that. And I think it's a response from a council that's sort of demonstrating the way forward with a lot of stuff. They ignore a lot, which is good too, and they can see that it's not a problem for them and they will, yeah, go out of their way really. It was a good, it was a good outcome. Brilliant. So, so why goats then? I, I know that we're starting off on the goats and there's much more about you than, than simply goats, but why goats? What, what's so amazing that you went through all that work to, to have goats on your, far, on your property, I guess? Well, it is our point of difference, I have to say. <laughs> we, it's an interesting story, actually. 2011 was the first year that we did Plastic Free July. I think it was in November, but we did a Plastic Free month anyway. And during that month, you are challenged to use no single-use disposable plastic. Wonderful resetting of habits and, and rethinking of the ways that you work around plastic. And in those days, there was no milk in glass bottles. My partner drinks tea continuously all day, so it would have been really expensive to be trying to get it from a cow or whatever. And so we took a rather unorthodox route to solve that problem, and we got goats. So we knew nothing about it when we first started. It was been a very steep learning curve, but they're a really important part of our life, and they have a sort of cycle of nature with them because they get one of the two of them is always giving birth in about September. So it's like, here's the beginning of summer coming. We've got the babies, you know, pregnancy means Easter time, you know. And so it's it's a really lovely thing and very uniting thing for the community, I think, too. We're no, you know, oh, is she the goat lady? And and yeah. what happens to the to the bait or to the kids? Isn't that the, the correct term? The kids. And and on top of that, a comment is that you're connecting to nature so well, the 
we we tend in the cities and towns to divorce ourselves from the natural world in so many ways. And the fact is that you, you mentioned how it represents spring, it represents the, the time of birth. And I guess that is so foreign to so many people, but you're able to ex- experience that by having these, you know, live animals with you that continue that cycle. Yeah, and it was really lovely. We were talking to a little kid the other day and her mum was saying, oh, when are they due? And he says, they're due in spring. That's when baby goats are born. You know, so he'd already seen it a few times and he knew that that's kind of sort of what happened. I mean, it's interesting. In the area that we live in, uh, there's another suburb just one block away called Whitegum Valley that has huge verges. And in the 60s and the 50s, there were goats everywhere. Because when I go downtown with the baby goats, I take them in a sling. They spend a lot of time with me, so we keep them as tame as we can. And I'd see a lady and, oh, goats, I can milk a goat. I had a goat. We shared it with my next neighbour, you know. And um, so the, the idea of harvesting the suburbs in that really practical way is something that's gone. But it was it was in the suburbs. It was in those places where people are living in quite high density. It hasn't always been a country thing. So the kids, we've managed to sell all our kids. Usually we uh, we castrate the boys, so they're really good pets, very placid. They get really well played with and stuff for the first six weeks or so. And then it's funny, usually someone pops up quite naturally that wants someone as a pet or the girls are usually quite good milkers and so they're actually, you know, worth something as a productive animal. Sorry for the men out there, but boys are not as valuable because you don't need quite so many of you to do the job. No, that's um, right. <laughs> and yeah, so so far we we are well aware that there may come a time that we don't that we're unable to get rid of a boy, um, and we're quite practical about that. We both eat meat, and I suppose that hasn't happened yet. But we're we're aware and ready for that eventuality to be the reality of life. But yeah, so far we do our best to, and we would never outsource that. Like a lot of people want to buy the boys for meat. So we tend to price them at just above what you would pay for a meat animal. So we'll make sure that that doesn't happen. Then when yeah. they arrive with the money, I just say, just take it. It's my baby. You can't pay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, lovely. In terms of, you, you mentioned that dry, oh, not dry July, but that's another popular movement during July, but the, the plastic free July. Yeah. To, to do that and to actually say we need milk when we refuse to use plastic, we're actually going to take this seriously and then to invest in in the idea of getting goats is is amazing. But that's sort of been, was that, I know that's been your work sort of since that moment about, you know, you're changing your habits and actually making changes so that when you want to do something, you actually enact behavioural change and, and make it happen. Were you in that field of work at that point or did that was that the stepping stone to actually get there? It was one of many stepping stones. So 2007, 2008, I was a school principal down at local Fremantle Primary School. I'm very busy, very tired, very stressed. Had a bit of a breakdown, I'm, you know, happy to admit. Questioned something that I had believed was who I was for the whole of my life. And also in the time that I was able to take off, which is a really good thing about working for the public service, I was able to start exploring some of the issues around the world as well because when you're miserable, you may as well find out about miserable things happening in the world at the same time. 
Um, and my partner was very interested at the time in the concept of peak oil and peak energy and concerns around just how our economy would not be able to continue to grow with a lack of cheap energy. And so we're starting to explore some of those questions. And I suppose it was a bit of a, oh, my God, what do we do? Until for me, anyway, there was a seminal moment where we went to a lecture and there was a guy there called Richard Heinberg, who's a peak oil expert, and he sort of gave the bad news. And then there was David Holmgren, who is the co-founder of Permaculture. And he talked about retrofitting the suburbs for this future that we would have where there is less energy, there is no car travel, there is you know, need for localised food production, need for localised support of community. And that kind of whole concept really inspired me. And that sort of set us, I suppose, upon the journey that we're on now. So quit work, started doing, running a little bed and breakfast called The Painted Fish. So that provided us with enough of an income to be able to start exploring some of the behaviour changes in our life that we were taking and then sharing that with others as well. It started off with the bed and breakfast then, like as a way to share what you were doing personally with with others and then somehow developed from that. What were the, some of the stepping stones from from that moment that led you to the goats? <laughs> yeah, well, it was interesting. As part of that journey, I suppose, we did a course called Living Smart. And Living Smart is a seven-week behaviour change course with a focus on behaviour change. So it's not about let's explore the issues around water and how terrible it is and how we're all going to run out, et cetera, et cetera. But it's more about practically what do you actually need to connect gutters from the rain falling on your roof down into your rainwater tank. So let's get some of the practical kind of stuff underway. And that course inspired us to make a whole pile of changes. And I think what happened is as we made changes, people got more and more interested. And therefore the education kind of side of what we do was sort of pushed on us in a way. I wanted a simple life. I'd had a breakdown, you know. And so, but that stuff, as we were doing things, people got more interested. And then we decided we'd run a Living Smart course for our street. So that was the first one that we did just for the people in that little street, Holbert Street, that we used to live in, South Mantle. And we managed to get, I think, about half the households involved. And that really sort of generated a lot of interest and a commonality and a way of thinking that was common kind of around the street. Yeah, and so those that was probably, so the lecture was a seminal moment, but not necessarily something you could see. And then that Living Smart course was something that you could gen, genuinely kind of see the progression and the movement of our journey plus the journey of the street. I definitely want to delve into, you know, your life as a teacher and then what happened to sort of build up to get to the point of having a breakdown and leaving the profession. But That's because you're a teacher, mate. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I need to, to find out. I might be not too far away myself, but we'll get into that. But um, no, I, I, love, I love teaching, but um, we, will, we will delve into that. But I do, this idea of having practical solutions instead of just realising that, you know, there are issues with water, there are issues with our soil, there are issues with weather and climate, there are issues with plastic, that all these issues that somehow bombard us. And, and most people say, well, I'm just going to bury my head in the sand because this is too too much. And anyone yeah. with empathy will find that 
it's probably, yeah. you know, a bit too much to handle. So did you have to somehow manoeuvre from despair of what's going on in the world to then really wanting to take action? Was it, did the course come to you or did you seek out this course? Uh, a bit of both probably, yeah. I mean, look, Richard Heinberg, I think it's his quote that says, if you're not scared, you don't get it. So, you know, that's like the first thing. And what we get when we do the course is people who are scared. So they come along. But secondly, there are very few people who are motivated by fear. My partner is one of them. So it's not like there's extraordinary no one. But so he will make changes based on fear. But most people make changes based on having the cognitive dissonance to have a forward thinking action close enough to them that they can do it but far enough away that it's not something they're already doing so that's where you get inspirational speakers if it's too far oh I quit my job and I don't need a career and you don't need money and you can live on nothing etc etc well it's too far for people so they're not going to be able to take that message on but if the speaker talks about a slow change that they made and going down from five days to four and reading books called like frugal hedonism and simplifying their lives then people go oh I can catch on to that and so one of the things that Living Smart does is a lot of it is about people actually sharing their own story so that cognitive the cognitive dissonance is really close to you and motivating to you whereas doona days when it's all too much you put your doona over your head because the cognitive dissonance is too far. If it's not enough, and this is where some politicians and people feel this, I'm already doing it anyway, okay? I don't need to know anymore. I'm already doing it all. It's not, it's close enough to me that I don't need to be concerned about it. So so I kind of like that idea. And in the work that we do when you're trying to do behaviour change with people, that's what you're trying to do is give them just enough of a catalyst to go for the next. Scaffolding, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we will constantly bring these terms up, I'm sure. But um, yeah, hope... <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can give everyone a definition of scaffolding now. <laughs> that, that idea of straddling fear and optimism, you know, hope and grief and is something I talk about a lot and do a lot you know, on my day, you know, my Tuesday will be a day of grief and saying, what am I doing? I'm not doing enough. And then the next day of inspiration and me starting this podcast was a way for me to actually speak to people that helped me not only shift my perspective, but have that inspiration, you know, energizing conversations in general are energizing, I think, especially when they are conversations and not debates or arguments, you know, which can be valuable at times, but mostly conversations that you are willing to reflect and learn from. And that's what I try and do here and bring what I was hoping to have in, in life to other people, hopefully, and, and inspire others um, through conversation. And I think that's a great way to do it. So, but I love the way that you said that, you know, to bring people practical measures, but people aren't inspired by fear that the the news stories, they're inspired by someone that they trust, someone local to tap them on the shoulder and say, I'll, I'll bring you along this ride and, and then empower them along the way too. It's not, if, you're, if you were gone, it doesn't mean that they stopped too, that they are now empowered. Is that the, the goal of Living Smart? And what yeah. You, you know, yeah. 
And I think it's also quite community embedded in community as well. So it's not someone who's got a Swish website and is selling their story of living plastic free for 20 years or whatever. It's the old Italian lady down the road who gave you a jar of passata and said, oh, next year you can come and help us do it if you like. You know, those are the kind. And so really people that people can relate to and feel an affinity with. And if they can be within your community, then all the more powerful that is. And that's why in the Living Smart course that we run, we use a lot of expertise within the group. There's actually no curriculum. There's 10 topics and we cover what people want. Um, And often there'll be people within the group that end up presenting because they have the expertise to present and to talk about various things in a way that I can't. So we try and keep it as authentic as as we possibly can. Um, I'm constantly saying, I don't know everything. We are not perfect. There are heaps of people doing, so many people doing exactly what we're doing. You know, seek them out, find them. They're everywhere. With that lack of curriculum or or exact structure, do you think that is liberating or is it, can it be stifling at times or, or is it more liberating than stifling? Well, look, I think for an experienced teacher, it's totally liberating. Yeah. because there's no book that you have to follow. You do what you know the kids want. There's no test at the end of it that you have to pass. You do. You look at each kid and you go, what do they actually need? And my education background is with ed support kids who didn't fit the curriculum anyway. And so I'm well used to going, here's a class of kids. What do they actually need? Oh, my God, he can't pull his pants up. So that's what we're going to work on, you know. Um, or this one's needing whatever in the reading area. And so that kind of ethos and thinking has now just been applied to some adults where at the beginning of the course we go, here's the topics, what do you want to explore together? Oh, you know, half of you want to learn about chickens, half of you already know about chickens, all right. You go and pair up and go and visit the chicken house of these other people, you know. or So you get to be really creative about how it is that you present that information. And that's, you know, just using good adult learning principles, which funnily enough, don't tell anyone, are exactly the same as good child learning principles. <laughs> yeah, who's going to be more offended, the kids or the adults with that one? I'm not, not sure. sure. <laughs> I know this is a really long-winded way to get to an introduction of yourself, Shani, but what, do you, what are you doing now then? What, what is it that you're actually sort of your label and, and your day job? Oh, it's quite interesting, actually. Uh, we were doing Healthy You in a Living Smart course, online Living Smart course I was presenting last night, and we were examining kind of life purpose stuff and the fact that what you do for a job doesn't necessarily always reflect directly what you see as your life purpose. We had to write a life purpose statement. See if I can remember mine. So I think I said my purpose was to give people hope in the future by teaching them the skills to make their life more resilient. Yeah, so that's where it is. I give people hope. And in the future, because of that fear thing we were just talking about, by teaching them some really practical and positive and optimistic things that can happen so they feel robust and resilient to face whatever it is. Let's not talk about sustainability anymore. That isn't going to happen Let's not talk about, you know, renewables changing the world so we can continue just as the way that we are. The world's going to get tough and we need to get resilient. That idea of resilience is one that I hear more and more often now because we're actually finding, I I guess it's everyone, but there's lots of research to show that the new generation, the millennials, 
have a lot less resilience when it comes to maybe the previous few generations. But in my own experience, I've actually seen a lack of resilience across the board. I, I teach a lot of young people that are super resilient, probably more aware of where the world's heading than people that are in you know, some of the older generations as well. So I think that there is a balance. But the idea of, of resilience being something we need to teach is more imperative than ever because there is that idea of a good parent means a protective parent at times, a parent that doesn't let children wander and, and hurt themselves or get dirty or, you know, at the park until the lights go on and that's the time to come home. I, th- I think I'm using the word resilience in a slightly different way to that because there's so many different aspects of that. So one is that exploratory, do you know yourself? Do you know what your limits are? Do you know what's dangerous and what's not? And then I suppose extrapolating that into your life. Can you grow your own? How dependent are you on a centralised system? Can you get support of neighbours very quickly and easily in a geographical way if something happens? Water, power, how in control of, of those things are you? So that if a system collapse happens in the same way an emotional collapse might happen, and that's the sort of resilience we're sort of talking about, um, can you cope? Do you think that they're related? Do you think that you're able to have that resilience of the secondary type to be practical when, uh, you know, when rather than if the system changes or collapses? Do you need the emotional side first, do you think? Oh, I don't know whether one happens. And we see this in Living Smart. Sometimes people will make a change and that will make them feel really confident about themselves, especially with things like gardening. And so it's not like they're a confident food producer and they have to learn how to do that first. They have to actually be practical with it as well. So I think that um, the two things are totally interrelated. And if Mm. you don't have the emotional resilience, you're not going to be able to go out and make those changes necessary because you're going to be totally doing a day under under sort of fear of, of what is coming or what might come. Yeah, so so that's your purpose, the idea of giving hope and, and I mean, teaching people still to, to live with hope and live in a resilient manner, to see what's ahead of them, but also be prepared for that. And how do you actually do that in a practical manner? What is your, you mentioned Living Smart, you've got Eco Burbia as well, and, and you're a, a presenter and a speaker. What, what, what does that look like? What's your, I guess, I'm much more interested in your purpose and, you know, in what's inside, but but to give people a little taste of what you do and what that looks practically day to day. Yeah, what yeah, that's what yeah. find walk around on the street going, I'm giving you hope and I'm spreading you hope and you can have a bit as well. So, no, we've got four or five things that Ecoburbia does. So the first one is Ecoburbia as a place is an example of alternative urban infill. And it's also an example of an alternative cooperative living model. So we have a old Italianate house that has been divided into six separate living areas. So they are all separate. They have their own bathrooms, their own kitchens. They're totally like independent little units. And five of them are rented out. Sorry, four of them are rented out. One we live in. And then there's one that we have temporary woofers and guests come through. So what that means is we have a, we we call it a community led by benevolent dictatorship. We don't sit and hold hands and sing kumbaya and talk about what toilet paper to buy and long-winded, you know, write long-winded policies on various things like some of that intentional community stuff being a bit facetious. And there's definitely a place for that. 
but we chose to do go a different route. So we choose people very specifically to come here. They don't own where it is that they live. They rent from us for a certain amount of time. Then they might move on depending on what their lifestyles are like. And so that is the first kind of thing, I suppose, that Ecoburbia is and kind of what it's well known for is this place. Because we have done that within the footprint of the original house, so we haven't actually increased built environment around us. We had a quarter acre block, so we now have all that other space for food production. So about 80% of our food in um, summer, about 50% of our veggies in winter actually come from the garden itself, plus all milk, cheese, eggs and a proportion of our meat. And so that is a sort of example that we run tours through that house for that reason. The property is also a good example of sustainable renovation. So it has good water systems, power systems, waste systems that you can see as a separate, totally separate thing to the actual environment of the infill itself. And then all that food production stuff that I talked about, we then go out into the community in a couple of different ways. So we are hired by people to go out and run workshops. Sometimes we run workshops just through Ecoburbia and we're starting to do that a little bit more. The online environment was a new one for me and one that I had resisted for years. But the joy of connecting with someone in New South Wales or someone in Queensland who's found the course and decided to come and do something and see what it is that we're doing here has meant that I've become more and more interested in that. And then we do a lot of community stuff. A lot of our energy is put into running movie nights and having house concerts and running a little group called Living Smarties, which is like a reskilling group. Lots of things like that within the community that support that kind of development of skills to develop hope. And then the fifth thing is the work that not just me, but a small group of us are doing in the 350 houses around us here that we've called the West Beaky Bunch. So in the same way that you might organise street parties and do street events, we're trying to ramp that up to 350 houses and a lot more people. So that, hopefully that gives you a bit of an essence. It's a place, it's a business, it's a community development opportunity, and it's basically us doing what we would do in our lives normally, but sharing it a bit more wider than you might do normally. Oh, brilliant. Do you see that as being a pathway for others to follow? Is that the purpose? Do you envision or envisage something that looks like that across, scattered across Fremantle, then WA and Perth, and then through the rest of the world, hopefully, not maybe not necessarily all through Ecoburbia, but a way that if you look at the world in how X amount of years that you see a much more community-minded, localised way of living that shares some of the things that you're able to teach right now? If you ask, if you ask me whether I can see a lower energy, localised, lots of food production, those things, then yes, I would like to see that. Is Ecoburbia the model for that? No way. Mm. There are many, many different models for achieving that. Even just the model of sort of cooperative housing, there are so many different ways that you can go about that. And they're going to suit different people, different personalities, different financial situations. But do we have to think differently about what we do in our suburbs? Absolutely. And it seems to be, it's a common 
movement in permaculture to do a very similar thing where you start doing stuff in your own home, moving out, and then you start teaching permaculture and then you kind of start becoming an example, I suppose, and very similar. I mean, we've actually set this house up to make it easy for us to do that. We have a community room that we can run courses from. We have an extra kitchen where that is so people can go and make a cup of tea and coffee and come back. We can have film nights there. We can run house concerts from there. We can have clothes exchanges and plant exchanges and all sorts of things. So it's like having a house slash community centre all, all together. I think a lot of our sort of culture wars, but even, you know, in the political world, you've got the left side of politics eating themselves in many ways. You know, a lot of the time directing passion to each other. You know, that, that as you said, someone that's vegan yelling at a meat eater that's, you know, probably potentially, you know, going to those rallies or helping people, you know, in the local community that are disadvantaged by collecting food for them or, you know, all these people that are doing great things in their circle of action that when it gets to the Twitter age and the the age of jumping on people that, you know, say the wrong thing, that we end up hurting the cause, which is a better world, a world that can thrive. You know, how do you approach this modern sort of yelling down the keyboard at people for a slip of the tongue or because they're not doing exactly what you're doing? And you've you've discussed that a little bit about channeling what your father would do, but do you have another reaction or something that you do or don't do that helps you you know, survive that vacuum that is social media. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I've got a great strategy. I go and plant broad beans in the garden. I pay no attention to it whatsoever. Mm. And I go and plant and do something within my circle of action that suits my skills and my interests and my energy. And I go and do that instead. Yeah. Right. So So does it appear in your circle of concern? Of course. Of course, of course it does, yeah, and I, but I wash it away. And I greatly admire people who are able to work in that realm and not go totally insane, and I might support them, you know, extra bowl of soup or whatever it is, but um, but I don't enter it in, into it myself, no. Sometimes I do at a very local level or a street level or we got, you know, we've got a few trolls that like to follow us and I get very upset about that, more upset than I should do. But generally, it's not where I put my energy because it's not where I chose to have my circle of action. I I feel like in my life at the moment, I've got a fairly good circle of action that is supportive of me and what I need psychologically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, communally. So I feel just at the moment, it changes day to day, but just at the moment, um, I feel like I've worked pretty hard to get to a space where I'm pretty happy with that. Right. And do you revisit that? Do you have to revisit physically and give time to that circle of action to really define what you do or is it sort of embedded in your habits now? No, you have to give time to it. My partner is a very big believer in goal setting and planning, life planning. I can't do what he does, but he sits down every three months and does a three-month, one-year, five-year plan. And that really helps him helps him keep on track. I have a shorter term. So we always say he does the long term, I do the short term. So he wouldn't know what day of the week it was, but I don't know what's going to happen in five years. So it kind of works out perfectly. 
But he and I sit down on a Monday morning. We have, we call it chat. So we start with just the diaries because when you work from home and you're both doing different things and there's lots, you know, it's not very structured. So we'll sit down with our diaries and go, this is happening, that's happening, what's going on here, what's going on there. And then there's a time for any issues to be discussed, whether they be with the business, with the property, what's the next priority as far as, you know, jobs go or, you know, this needs attention, that needs attention. And then also personal issues, you know, it's pissing me off when you do this or I feel like you're getting a little bit stressed out. Do you, can, is there some way you can get someone to help with, can one of the woofers help with some of the office staff or is it just stuff that has to be done, you know, et cetera. That's one way that I keep track of that action stuff and if it gets overwhelming like if I find out more issues or there's something that happens at a local or international level or COVID for example then I might sit down and actually draw those circles which helps me feel more in control of it and add into those circles those things that I that I worry about and think am I still doing the most appropriate thing or did COVID change something that I think my focus should be was it difficult jumping ship from a steady income and job and and mindset of what life would look like and what life was going to look like to then change it completely, you know, in, in 2008 or nine, you said? So was that an easy or a very difficult shift? And I know that you mentioned that you had your own personal things that you're going through that may have may have led there, but was it really tough to to make that, that shift? Well, yes. Absolutely. Was it the hardest thing? Someone asked, we, during COVID, we started this thing where at morning tea, you ask a question because we had nine of us living here, but three were 1.5 metres from everyone else. And so we couldn't really have one big conversation. So we started having a question. And the other day, the question was, what's the bravest thing you've ever done? And my immediate response was to leave the education department. I had had a fortnightly income since I was 14 years old, a continuous fortnightly income. I had never experienced self-business, self-promotion, self-anything. My partner was the opposite. He's never had a job for more than three months, a continuous job. He had, you know, so he used to be a um, a stonemason. He now works as a sand sculptor. So got lots of work, but not a continuous kind of. So that was also probably the most traumatic thing that's ever happened. I was diagnosed several years afterwards, although we realised that this was probably the impetus that brought this forward with bipolar disorder. So I experienced a first depressive episode just as I was leaving, followed by a quite a high episode when we set up the paint of fish and did all this stuff. So it was highly useful time I was still relatively productive but the second time that that cycle happened about uh, five or six years later the high wasn't as as productive and as pleasant because it got too high that's when I was diagnosed so in reality who knows whether that would have ever been diagnosed if I wasn't under the pressure that I was under but it was certainly this genetic predisposition there and so as a cycle of concern my physiological or psychological cycle was also the same as the cycle of 
concern we had for the world and energy to sort of be doing something about it. So, yeah, that was a very, very pivotal, the pivotal point probably in my life, I'd suggest. Yeah. What year was that? So you you talked about the, was that your first sort of bout of the pit of that bipolar was when you were leaving teaching, was it? Leaving being a principal, was that at that point? And was, did they make the decision to leave because of that entry? I didn't know. Okay. I was undiagnosed at that point. Yeah. Um, when you're depressed, one of the things that people who are depressed often do is find something to focus on that is the reason for their miserableness. Mm. So I had a bullying incident happening. And to be perfectly fair, that incident was bad. And there's, you know, it would have been difficult for anyone to deal with. But it also became the focus of a lot of my negative kind of attention and anxiety and all of that sort of stuff. So I got, I was diagnosed with depression, but never, but not the bipolar aspect of that at that, at that point. And very luckily found some doctors who said time is what you need and gave me all the time that I needed. Yeah. It was an interesting time. I wasn't diagnosed till 2012. I just assumed I'd had a bout of depression due to environmental factors, you know, and hadn't hadn't kind of thought of it in any other way other than that. And no real previous history of that either. So n- nothing in childhood, nothing anywhere else that kind of suggested that, that except for a manic depressive aunt. You mentioned in your TED talk, and you brought it up a little uh, in a way earlier in this conversation that. There were some sort of dark times and one of those was being robbed. Yeah. Was that at the point that you're talking about where you sort of went back to a to a depressive state again? Is that was it that yeah, event so, that caused it? Yeah. Yeah. So bipolar naturally, if left to its own devices, will have a depressive stage mm. and then a high stage. And each person is very different as yep. far as what the how the length of time between those two things. There's two different types. So one type of bipolar, the highs are just a really productive time and you don't kind of behave too abnormally. You're existing on less sleep. You're getting a lot of stuff done. You might be a little bit, you know, oh, my God, I need to go to sleep, but you're able to to actually kind of control that. And a lot of people in work environments who do quite well in work environments do quite well under that system. And then you'll slip, you'll be normal for a little while and then you might slip back down. And so that point of the burglary was another point of a pivotal sort of depressive point. A little bit different to the first one in that I didn't have a target for it. So I wasn't able to say why it was that I was depressed. But then I slipped into a much higher and more dangerous high in the way where I became at the top of that quite psychotic and landed myself in hospital for four weeks and in all sorts of various things. Now, now I'm well treated, well medicated. Um, I take my drugs regularly. You do all the things that I'm meant to do. And so none of that stuff is kind of an issue anymore in that way. But there are interesting parallels to people who have experiences like that that are less intensive. So that fear-based depressive time, moving into a time of doing little changes, lots of little things, becoming a bit energised, going a bit evangelical about it, you know, like, oh, my God, that lawnmower has got to stop now and (laughs) this person needs to learn about composting and they're not doing this. And so they're very interesting parallels all the time between 
you know, we do it. Winter is the time that's slower and gentler and we sleep more and then in summer the energy comes up again and so, you know, it, it's all it's all on a continuum. I often get called by friends, I get called the bipolar bear and I'm not sure if that's a term of endearment or, or what, but um, that I am at times and obviously no diagnosis and obviously not belittling any of the real diagnosis of what bipolar really is. But oftentimes I am on a, and probably after this conversation, I'll be up and about saying, you know, Shani and I had this great conversation and we talked about this and she got me on this point and, and she made, she woke me up on this other point and, and for a few days I'll be up and about and then something happens and well there is a there is a there is a third type of bipolar there's a quick cycling mate so you never know (laughs) well yeah I I don't know because I do go up from that and and something's amazing and I'm pushing and I'm you know the lack of sleep and the I'm addicted to writing this you know short story or whatever it might be and then all of a sudden the next week I, I never want to write again I've got no creativity. I don't want to talk to anyone. So it is probably there's a you do say there's a continuum, but I think it's it's fairly based on what's going on around me rather than just completely random. So that's sort of sometimes what people say. If you lose a loved one or something really horrible happens, you're expected to feel grief. You're expected to feel sadness. It's when it sort of happens, you know, out of nowhere or maybe oh. over and above what what should happen is when you know we 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 have those diagnoses. Well, think as a society i mean this is getting off sustainability now but i think as a society we know and understand the sadness of grief more than we understand the excitement of a new idea or a creative thought or a, oh my god i've had this conversation which we allow little kids to have they're allowed to get overexcited jump around and do all that sort of stuff but we don't we it's not as acceptable to do as an adult to have that playful free sort of spirit I, I want to touch on that. I mean, this isn't for sustainability reasons, although that's part of why we've we've been able to chat, but I'd love to touch on that because adults feel like they need a drink or do drugs or whatever it is to have a weekend or a, a festival or maybe whatever it is to let loose and, and dance and, and feel freedom to to enjoy it. But kids can do it without embarrassment until they learn. They learn embarrassment. So do you have you found a way to be a bit more free or to to around you have you seen people that are able to find that kid in inside of them and and you know just jump in mud or do whatever you need to do to just enjoy that moment are you able to do that or find people that do do that well I do I do I probably do it less than I used to do but I'm a bit medicated now whereas previously I wasn't Mm. um so (laughs) I but when I was a school principal I used to dress in silly clothes every Friday So it started with a term where someone challenged me to dress in theme once every Friday for assembly. So, you know, it was Red Nose Day and then it was some other day and there's always some day where you've got to have a dress-up. So I said, yeah, and then the dress-ups ended up in my office and somehow someone bet me that I couldn't do it every week and so we started doing it every week and then I started saying, I'm getting sick of getting changed, so I'd stay in costume all. Friday and then I moved to school that was very accepted and seen as quite normal in the school that I was in then I went to Fremantle Primary School and I continued to do it dress so I had a whole office full of wardrobe of costumes 
just, you know, stupid things, whatever. And people would give you stuff when they know that you're collecting sort of things like that. So, you know, I'd be up in front of the school with a half fairy, half tortoise costume on or, or whatever it was. And it was interesting there actually because the kids loved it. The parents loved it, absolutely loved it, and the teachers hated it. So I actually had a petition. They actually signed a petition and put it on my desk saying, you're embarrassing the school. This is not what a school should be about, and and we don't understand why you're doing it. And I had never thought about why I was doing it. It was just for fun. Like there was, so I had to go back. It's a bit like, did you set a goal first or like what was the goal of the dressing up? Why? I hadn't even thought about it. It was just a bit of a joke that had extended. I mean, if I had a meeting on, I would go dressed up. I would go to the major principal meetings dressed up in a fairy costume because that happened to be on a Friday and Friday was when I wore my dress up. So I worked in the complaint department for a little while, the education department dressed as a clown on a Friday. And and everyone, everyone kind of got it in that higher, I suppose, more intellectual thinking level of what was going on where they were having to deal with problems at a very deeper level but at that level of the school it was really not very well accepted so I can't remember what the question was but it was about just purely fun you know and the kids would say why are you dressed up and I'd say because it's fun and you got to be a little bit of a kid again. I used to love it, like trying to figure out what I was going to wear and so someone would give me something new and I'd be all excited, oh, my God, I get to wear that on Friday or, you know, whatever. It's amazing that the, the teachers were against that because oftentimes, you know, teachers do feel overwhelmed and and under the pump. And I guess maybe it's if I'm feeling that way, someone that's this person needs to feel worse than me because they're getting paid more or they're telling me what to do. So... Maybe it's got something to do with that, but, you know, you never know. They're they're also very conservative generally. Teachers as a bunch are extremely conservative. And the school used to be a circus school 15 years previously, and there was one lady who had been there, and she said, I never want the school to be like that again because it was known as, you know. And so, But she was the only one who'd been there then. So anyway, it was interesting. And I went to my boss and I said, what am I going to do? And he said, well, why are you doing it? And we tried to figure out why. And then he said, well, I'd be really sad if you stopped. So, you know, that, that was good. So I kept going. Straddling that line of, you know, serious issues and, and you are quite aware of serious issues and you're facing up and taking, you know, some drastic steps along the way to prepare yourself for serious issues that are coming up. And you mentioned earlier that COVID sort of was a surprise taste of what prepping might you know, why resilience is important and why preparation for the for coming change is, is important. But we've got something ahead, the climate crisis, the climate catastrophe that and everything associated with that, which includes pandemics, is on its way. And that is serious stuff. But, you know, we, within that, you need to have fun. You need to be able to jump around and enjoy and, and talk about something that's completely unrelated. I think we, we often get set in like... I'm in this pathway of being really serious and and focusing only on, you know, this political action or only on making whatever, veganism the only way to go or the other way is, you know, that we're all able to play golf during a pandemic in Victoria. You know, many people were like, why aren't we able to play golf? And it was their petition signing and whatever. 
people find one way and, and, and you have to be serious when you're talking about that. But there is space for fun. There is space for enjoyment. And I guess you, you had that as a principle. Do you still maintain that that is essential for a community to thrive, that fun has to be a part of it? It's in your goal set? COVID taught us something about geographical community because, you know, I, I'm, I don't, but I might have a grandmother in Melbourne and I could do nothing for her during COVID, could I? Mm. But I can do something for the old lady two houses down. And that's always been what I thought where the need was going to be is in that real localised. So I have a pretend little goal, if you'd like, for the 350 houses around us that if we needed to, we could take 50 climate refugees, okay, whether they're from Australia or somewhere else, wherever they're from, we would take 50 people into our little 350 houses and we would take care of them. We'd have a meals roster and we'd have a spare bedroom here and we'd have this and we'd set all that up and we'd... So you kind of go, okay, well, what would we need to do that? Now, we had a winter solstice fire the other day, okay? And it wasn't my idea. I actually didn't like the idea. But someone said, let's have a fire on that spare block. Oh, we can't do that. Yeah, why can't we? Let's speak to the owners of the block. There's a resource there. Can we use it? Oh, my God, the council's got some fire drums from before you know it. Now, the, the ability to organise that bit of fun, okay, that bit of frivolity with us laughing and joking and writing things and putting them into the fire to get rid of them and all of that sort of stuff, exactly the same skills you need to coordinate 50 climate refugees. So you do that stuff when the trust horizon is very big and when people trust each other in preparation for when they might have to do it later on. And hell, it's fun. And then when they do have to be doing something, you know, the the people that go and make sandwiches for the firefighters, are you telling me they don't have fun while they're doing it? Mm. Of course they have fun while they're doing it. And so I think that some of the, especially some of the community building stuff that I'm really passionate about is about people just joining together and having fun. You don't need to tell them that we're preparing for the end of the world. You don't need to say anything about any of that. But what COVID taught us is, you know, within 24 hours in this community, we had the street court, we had a note, we had the street coordinators, the note was delivered to every house we had an emergency phone number, we had a WhatsApp group and we had 26 volunteers on the ground, on a list, ready to go. And as it was, two people bloody rang the emergency phone. (laughs) Nobody needed it, you know, but um, it was there and the structure was there and the reason we were able to do that is because we had that, that connection and those structures in place to be able to allow that to happen quite quickly. The blockers that often come in in a situation like this, you know, you talked about red tape, you talked about a few things that, you know, come along and I know that you've you've um, said before that it's much easier to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. That's, I guess, a way to, to beat the first sign of the first line of blockers. But oftentimes people block progress, their own personal well-being or progress because of their own self-talk. You know, how do you approach someone that's really blocking a lot of progress for a community 
and also for themselves that, that you know, want to change, not the lady washing the windows that um, or of the house that, you know, is a watering the rock, but someone that you see potentially in all that they've got something that can really offer a lot to the community. How do you go past that first stage of fear? What, what's your plan of attack? No, oh, very lucky often in community things because the real blockers don't sort of turn up. So we're not really dealing with anyone that's actually too difficult in lots of ways. Um, and because I work in a way where it's like, great, Kelly, you want to organise the fire? You go organise the fire, away you go. Then you don't have to have those conversations where someone's saying, no, it should be done this way and no, it should be done that way. And so there's a bit of a personality leadership style thing there that helps. But we don't often ask directly for help of people. We go, who would like to, is there anyone willing to or whatever? So when I have someone, so there's a lady in a previous life, I will say, who is frustratingly annoying and I've had to sit back and go, what skills does she have? What are her skills, her interests? What's her, what's her circle of influence and what's her circle of action? Or really, what is her circle of influence and can I manipulate her circle of action by asking her to do something really specific? So, for example, this person might be really good at talking to strangers. So they might be the perfect person to go door knocking and talking to people or the perfect person to sit at the door of the community event and say hello to everyone. But she might not be as good as at something else. And so people want to belong. They want to feel valued. They want to feel like they're doing something. And it's a matter of back to that influence and action. What can they actually influence and what action can we get them to be concentrating on and doing so that they're not annoying us by trying to do something? It's really about creating an environment where blockers have less of an influence than the people that want to do things, isn't it? It's really ensuring that blockers have less power than, than people that want to take action, isn't it? Look, you know, like I'm sure if you got into an argument with someone and then they said, look, Matthew, you are really good at this and this and this. I want you to do a podcast for the school because I hear you've been doing one personally yourself. I want you to do a podcast for the school. I want you to interview a whole pile of different kids and how much money do you want to actually do that? And then you would go, oh, my God, thank you so much. And then I wouldn't have to put up with and listen to you being depressed one minute and high the next and telling mm. me things in the stat or whatever. You made a, we had a talk, a TEDx talk from Perth in 2013, I believe, that became quite well received. And that's what I, where I was uh, first introduced to you through that. And you mentioned Holbert Street as a, as a place. Could you go through a little, you know, I know that went for 20 minutes and there was the full story, but just a little run through of, you know, leaving teaching. And I want to go back to teaching and back to your earlier life at some point, definitely. But, you know, from that moment where you decided that, we're going to affect change in our community, make something happen. And at what point you thought, you know what, I'm going to have what you've got now. Did, was there a point where you said what you've got now is the goal? Was it always the goal or did it evolve from just wanting to probably do more than you were able to do at Holbert Street? Um, now, it might be a reaction from having worked for the education department for years, but I never set a goal. 
We never had a goal. We ha- we were exploring and seeing where things might go. And we're not in Holbert Street anymore. That may mm-hmm. sometimes yep. get confused. But we don't live in Holbert Street anymore. And that community was another example of what can be done. So when we look at the illegal use of common land in Holbert Street, it was amazing. We had our goats in the next neighbour's yard. That was a rental. The owner didn't even know that they were there. Food gardens were on road verge down. We had two properties. We owned a bed and breakfast. And after that Living Smart course, that community of that street just grew to the point where, and I think at the end of my TED Talk, I talk about the highlight of that being a fiesta that we had, which started as a garage sale. And we, during the garage sale, someone said, I might make cups of tea. And we said, well, we may as well have the house open for people to go down and have a look. And someone else said, if you're making cups of tea, maybe I'll get the kids to serve lemonade. And it kind of went from there into this 7,500 people coming over the weekend to see two open homes, five open gardens, and five open art studios in a street of 31 houses. Quite extraordinary. And managed in a way such that everyone had something to offer that and did something towards that. And we never met. We had two meetings. We had a meeting of celebration and brainstorming of new ideas for the next year. And we had a meeting to sort out the money. And other than that, it was, you had that idea, you run with it. How much money do you want? I'll get you the money. You have an idea, you run with it. So they don't have to come back to committees or, you know, to come back and say, oh, we don't like that idea and I think it should be red instead of purple. Right. If you want to do it, we trust you to do it. Go and get on with it. If you need help, come and let us know. And I think people really liked that. It looks like one person's controlling it, but it's actually not. It's about delegation. Um, And as a school principal, it's a style of leadership that was very familiar to me. However, there were huge disadvantages to down there. We're running a bed and breakfast, got lots of water from laundry all the time. Our food garden was a long way away. So structurally, things were difficult and tricky. Tim had another kind of surge of concern and fear and worry about the future. And he said, we need to go to the country. Need to get out of here. We need to get a cow. We need to move somewhere where we can be self, you know, much more self-sufficient than we were. And I said, if stuff's going to be horrible, I want a community that know and love me and I trust and believe, you know, that we love each other and work together. And I want them close. And I don't want to, at this point in my life, be re-establishing myself. I wouldn't say we had an argument, although we did. I'd say we had long-winded discussions about that and in the end decided on a compromise and that's where we've ended up now, where we've ended up on a quarter-acre block. We can control our grey water. It goes on the fruit trees. We have the power systems we need. We basically recreated what we had there, except instead of running a bed and breakfast, we run um, we rent them out long-term. So basically we had everything. But we, but Holbert Street will always be Holbert Street and up here will never be the same. Mm. It, was a, it was a, I feel very, very privileged to have experienced that time. And I think in the talk, I talk about some quite dark and difficult times when, that we were there and just the support that was offered 
from the people just down the road from you. Like Mm. there wasn't a single person in that street that didn't put their hand out to help when we needed help. And, you know, that's pretty magical and you don't don't get that very often. So feel very grateful when you've had that in your life. That idea of fear sort of being the source of change that you mentioned that Tim has, often people, and I, I, you hear this a lot from doomsday preppers or from people in Silicon Valley that go and buy a mountainside and put a bunker in, you know, in the side of a mountain and, you know, get it all ready, but it's very much an isolated individual thing. You, I guess, felt the same ideas and probably didn't have the billion dollars that, you know, a mountainside would uh, require, a mountainside bunker. But instead, you and Tim decided to actually create a a community that was resilient and allowed you to be more resilient too. So was that a a definite plan? Was that something you really, really needed? It's quite interesting just talking about preppers, if I can go back for a moment. I was recently asked to be on a prepper panel And there was an exhibition of preppers and these people had, you know, bunkers of food and guns and, you know, all the kind of thing thing that we think about when we think about preppers. And, you know, we have have always had a store of food in our house. We have always had extra toilet paper. We have an 8,000-litre emergency rainwater tank out the back. You know, we've had those things not thinking about COVID, but then when COVID happened, mm. everyone was like, well, how friggin' sensible were you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't even have to go into the shops for any of the panic buying. But I remember on this panel just saying, talking about this very issue and talking about the bunker thing, and one of the ladies was an expert in hunting and she was teaching people how to hunt with a bow and arrow and she had her house in Tasmania and she hunted and she had she was set up you know she was she was ready to go and I was feeling very uncomfortable with being even on this panel and I was saying look that is not what we're about I have not hoped that the future will be okay but that humanity and people will come to the party in a way that is necessary when faced with something you know and we did to a certain degree with COVID. But I started talking about the work that I felt really strongly about in the community and building resilience in the community and having a common understanding and knowing where your resources are and where you can go to if you need help and where you where, where who are the first people that are going to need help as well so that you can assist and talking about all those things. And I was raving on and on and on. And then I went, oh my God, I'm a prepper. Because a prepper is preparing for the future. That's all that that means. And do I think about the future? Yes. Do I prepare for that? Yes. Therefore, hello, I'm happy to be a prepper. Whereas up until that point, the the word means something different. So, I guess it's yeah. the way that you described earlier that you see the world being low energy, localised, but ecoburby is not the way for everyone. And do you sort of see it the same way with preparing for the future? Yeah. I mean, again, we can go back to some basic things. You know, when you look at the basic necessities of life, it's good to prepare for them and to have some. But your preparation is going to be dependent on what your skills are. We often talk in Living Smart about a circle of concern. So I get people to draw this massive circle around themselves. It's a big 
all the things that you worry about, all that fear-based stuff, the stuff that you set this podcast up for, all the conversations that you needed to have because as you lie in bed or you look at the kids that you're teaching or you think about your children or whatever it is, all those things that you're concerned about. And then you take the skills and the abilities and the talents that you have and you draw a smaller circle of those things that you could influence. So if you're a good writer, could you assist people making policy documents for a community garden? Are you a grant writer? Are you the sort of person who likes to go out and speak? Could you give inspirational speakers, speeches, whatever? All those ways that you could do what you could do. And that's your circle of influence. That's where you could actually do something from. Then, and here's what a lot of people don't do, you sit down and you go, what time do I have and what energy do I have? And then you draw a smaller circle in there and that's what you choose. That's your circle of action. So I often say I could run for council in the city of Fremantle and would probably get in. And then Tim would leave me because (laughs) the amount of pressure and the fact that I know myself well enough to know that I don't like to be criticised to the extent that he would do if you put yourself in the public realm like that and that I wouldn't cope with that very well. So I've consciously gone, that is within my skill set to be able to do that, I understand that, but my circle of action, so Tim and I don't go to rallies, we don't do petitions, we don't do a lot of political protest stuff because we've chosen to live a simple resilient, more sustainable life and to share that with others. And that's where we've decided to sort of put the energy. Not 100% sure that that's answering what the question was because I can't remember what the question was, but that's okay. (laughs) No, no, that's a great, great answer and and leads to so much to to ask from there. So I guess the, the, the original question was relating to how do you get to the point where you're prepared for the future? And I think that you gave a clear guideline as the way what you would instruct people to do. So, you know, find out everything that you're scared of, then limit it to the things that you think that you could actually make an impact on. And then even from there, which is the bit that you were saying is rarely done, is actually find out what you are willing to do with your time and energy. From that point, I think people come to a crossroads. It's, I don't have the time and energy to have a compost bin in the backyard I don't have the time and energy to go to the local market on a Sunday morning, the farmer's market. I'm going to go three times a week at night to the, to the plastic wrapped stuff in the supermarket. At what point do you have to sort of allow for more energy and allow for more time to do the things that, well, first of all, is it essential that everyone that you expect or you would hope that everyone would be able to do those simple things or what we consider simple of shopping better, you know, maybe growing some more things, you know, not throwing your plastic away in the normal rubbish bin. If you do use plastic, it's recyclable. If you do have food waste, it's composted. Would you say that they're sort of non-negotiables or they still come under that rule of do you have the time and energy? And if it is a non-negotiable, how do you get there? Do you have any non-negotiables? So I'll tell you another story about the circle of concern and the circle of action, hopefully, that will address that a little bit. Mm. So I'm working in this circle of action. I'm telling the story to a group of university professors from Western Australia and also from Singapore. And after, you know, I do this inspirational talk and I'm jumping around and getting them all to set goals and et cetera, et cetera, and doing my thing, 
And afterwards, this professor from Singapore comes up to me and he says, thank you for your talk. It was 50% inspirational. And I said, oh, thank you. Thank you. you know. He said, and 50% useless. Right. And he walked off. Mm. And I went, shit, I've heard the inspirational bit before, but I've never heard the useless. And I pandered after him like a little kid and sort of tapped him on the shoulder, which apparently you don't do. I didn't know this. um, And said, I get the inspiration bit, but what's the useless? And he said, you can keep doing that as long as you like, but you won't change the world that way. Right? So he was the head of the world's renewable resource something or other. I didn't know what it was. So he and I shared a circle of concern. It was a huge one. But he had chosen a circle of action that was different to my circle of action. So we couldn't see each other. And this is part of the problem that happens in this realm. I'm busily protesting, walking up and down the streets, doing whatever I feel I need to do to change the political system. Valuable, amazing, must-be-done work. I'm at home composting, teaching people how to compost, etc. Now, for me, I work really hard not to judge. And if that protester who's been making banners till four in the morning goes past the petrol station and buys a sandwich wrapped in plastic, I don't give a shit. Mm. In the same way that I expect that person not to give a shit if I'm home composting and feeding my chickens and milking my goats and not going to his protest. Does that make sense? Yeah. So are there negotiables? Yeah, there are. You know what? That protester is going to compost. He's going to be doing the the disposable plastic stuff. He's going to be. Most people who are interested in this area do some of those kind of minimal things and they start with that and then move to where their influence and their action needs to be. But I think it's really, really important that we don't judge people who are working hard in that realm. Now, I'm happy to judge someone who has learnt about the issues, okay, who feels no personal accountability towards the issues because that's another big thing. There's the education and the means to do something. Do you know what to do? And do you feel a social responsibility to do something about it? And people who share no responsibility to do anything about it, even though they know what to do, who are what I call shirkers, they are ignoring it, those people I judge. I'm happy to say that. Mm. But people who have accepted a personal responsibility and either don't know what to do or know what to do but are acting and freaking and wearing themselves out because they don't know about a circle of action, I I try not to judge anyone. Yeah, so that, that oh, there's two things that I want to touch on. One is I would love to hear the way that you got to your circle of action. But prior, today, something triggered in my brain. I saw someone uh, with a petrol-based leaf blower out in their driveway and they were blowing all the leaves out with, you know, the smoke going in the air and the loud noise and everything, blowing the leaves just out on the street. Yeah. And <laughs> my instant reaction was to judge was to go to the negative, was to just get upset. <laughs> just like this, and, I, and not just from the leaf blower itself, that action, which is obviously spewing carbon into the atmosphere, using petrol oil, you know, to remove nature from your doorstep, but not 
remove it totally or to make it into something better, but just simply make it someone else's issue. Like that's, that's the part that it was, it's not even benefiting. You know, I can understand using petrol to benefit something that's greater than the use of petrol maybe, but I've, I was pulled up on it when I mentioned it to my partner, you know, don't be so negative, you know, focus on what you can control, etc. But for me, it was a metaphor of life. So many people, you know, focus on what's convenient or quick or, or even beyond that, just not really taking the time to see how their action connects to our ecosystem as humans, as animals, as plants, everything, the whole earth, everything on earth is interconnected. And that action there seems isolated and, and mundane and not worth thinking about. But on a, on a scale of what everyone does each day, it piles up and we can all grab a rake out or use something to, to collect those leaves in a different manner. But it's also by you saying what you said that just then made me say that it's not my place to judge. It's not my place to, because I have a lawnmower <laughs> and I was thinking, well, I've got a lawnmower. Is cutting grass more important? I mean, maybe I just prioritise cutting grass, but I'm still using petrol at the moment with that. Not often and, you know, try to do other things, but it, it happens. So then I just realised that I'm a hypocrite, which is what I'm trying not to be. So I guess that judging, removing judgment is the first level because if you're judging others, you're judging yourself and then that can lead to a, a, a place of despair. Do you have a comment on, on that story? I've got three comments to make. One is no one needs to apologise for being perfectly human, okay? Mm -hmm. There isn't a single one of us who hasn't looked at a leaf blower or a jet ski and gone, what the fuck is the (laughs) purpose of that thing, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's perfectly fine. So when I say I don't judge, that's bullshit. And if my partner was here, he would laugh himself silly. We're all human and we all do it, okay? So when I do, I try and channel my father, who was a wonderful man, and would say, think behind why people might be doing something, and that's the trick to helping them change. So, you know, when someone tooted him in the car, instead of getting annoyed, he would say, oh, my God, that person might be on the way to the hospital right? That's the sort of thinking. Mm. So if someone was using a leaf blower and he could feel him start, start, he would say, I wonder if that person's got a bad back and they're scared that they're going to slip over the leaves, even though he knows that that is perfectly not the truth of it, you know? And then, but then I can go and have a conversation and say, oh, have you got a bad back? Is that why, you, you know, is that why? You, now that's a much better way to approach that from a behaviour change perspective, then is to say, did you know that we're running out of oil and your thing thing is destroying the environment and blah, 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 blah. Um, And so that would be my first question, my first comment. My second one would be, there's an expression, don't water the rocks, okay? So we have a lady down the road here who washes her house with the hose every morning. Mm -hmm. So every morning she sprays down her house and she sprays down the dust. Now, I made a decision that there was nothing I was going to be able to do about that lady doing that. She's probably 87. It's the only thing she does in the day. I'm never going to be able to to change that. And so she's a rock and I'm not going to concentrate on pouring my water on that rock. I'm going to concentrate on pouring it with the flowers in between that are moving into the cracks of the rocks and have a much better chance of actually 
ripping those rocks apart than anything I can do from my watering can. And so sometimes leaf blowers especially or watering the house or whatever it is, I do two things. I say I'm not going to put my energy there and I'm going to not judge why that person is doing that in the same way that when that activist, political activist, stops at 3 a.m. to get a sandwich wrapped in plastic, I'm not going to judge that because I actually don't know what else is what else is going on there. So, you know, I sound like a saint. I'm not like that, but that's the way. If I have to think, sit back and think about it, that's the way that I like to try and think about humanity and, and the changes that, that everyone is trying to make. Shani, a lot of what you've been discussing has been really like obviously inspirational and, and, you know, you can see that through, you know, the way you talk about things and your passions, but it stemmed from somewhere, which was where you grew up in, in Canada. So mm. would you, can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up, what it was like and, and why you wanted to, I guess, create that in your adult life? Well, I'm a bit of a slow learner because it wasn't until recently that I sat back and went, oh, my God, I am reliving my childhood. So I have Australian parents. They had gone off to Canada to see the world. They started having children. In those days, you didn't fly back and forth every year. So they settled in the town in Canada. My dad was the counsellor at the local high school. And we lived on the edge of town. So we had two acres right on the edge of, I think there were 7,000 people or something, not a, not a big town. And we had a big veggie garden and we had chickens and we had goats and we had rabbits and my parents were sort of homesteaders. And it wasn't till the other day, well, it was probably 12 months ago that my mum said, you know, we had rabbits and chickens and all the things that you're doing, don't you? And I was like, oh, my God, I've never really thought about that. And when I said to her, why were you doing that? She, it wasn't, there wasn't a political thing. I thought it would be post-oil, 1970s oil shocks kind of responses to that or some sort of political response or whatever. She said, no, we were just saving money. And we just happened to have the space to be able to, to do a lot of that stuff. So I grew up with things as normal, I suppose, and natural that maybe other people didn't, at the same time as being in a relatively big town with a big high school and lots of friends and not. So I kind of had a bit of, a bit of both of the best of both of those worlds. Yeah. And um, just fascinating to kind of go, hmm, okay, yes, look at what we've created for different reasons but gone straight back to the roots, you know. So do you think that there was a, an urge, an itch that was there even subconsciously that you needed to, to bring that back? If it was there, it was subconscious and still yeah. is. Um, the urge I had from the age of 11 was to be a teacher and then the day I started teaching I looked at my boss and went, I want to be a principal. So. That, that, if anything, that was an urge. My father was a very, very well-regarded and skilled, gifted educator, and I, I just followed, wanted to follow in his footsteps. I suppose. Yeah. So you, you loved teaching. You loved, you know, um, 
working with children, obviously, and then becoming a principal. What was the, why did you want to be a principal? Was it to have more of an influence or was it that you saw someone that you inspired you at that level? Uh, probably that I'm a control freak. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think that that job can influence so much what mm. kind of happens in a school and working with adults to get the best out of the adults so that you're getting the best out of the kids is is a real challenge. And also I really enjoyed working with a school community and making that community as strong and as bonded as as I could. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm, yes. I know you don't like talking about this, but the average person that's listening to this or the inspirational person, the extraordinary person, whoever might be listening to this, but someone that hasn't thought too deeply about the the changes they could make in their lives or someone that is thinking about it daily about potentially I want to uproot and change everything. Would you give some, you know, is there a a word, a pearl of wisdom, a word of wisdom that you can give that you'd like to share to to those listeners now, me being one of them? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It doesn't really matter what you do. Just do something. Be brave. Be willing to live on the margins. Uh, There's a permaculture principle that talks about action on the edge. I don't actually agree with beg for forgiveness, ask for permission, because I think you ask for for permission of the people who are going to be affected by what you do. If the person's not going to be affected or the organisation's not going to be affected, then don't ask permission of them. But you know, we just planted 420 native seedlings and I needed to make sure that all the people whose view, who would be fearful that their view was going to be blocked out, didn't go and pull those seedlings out. So I asked permission of them. I didn't ask permission of the council. I would say do one thing and then celebrate. Then do another thing and then celebrate. So what tends to happen is we allow the fear to overtake us and we just go, go do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, whereas we don't stop and go reflect. What what could I do? Take some action. Oh, my God, guess what I did? That's where I really like living smart because you do that on a weekly cycle. So you weekly look at a particular issue, some things you could do. You choose one thing to do in the next week and then you come back and everyone goes, yeah beauty and then the next week the same thing happens. people always ask or oh, what are your t- five tip top tips that you think everyone should do i don't know i don't mm. care as long as you are looking at those things you're worried about looking at what you could do and just taking action on one thing and you just do one thing then you do another thing and another there's a bit of an either or thing going on at the moment with like the XR kind of protest stuff versus the at home kind of grow your own food, all that sort of stuff. And it's like the two are looking at each other from different circles of action and criticizing each other. And I saw a beautiful thing the other day where someone said, it's not or, it's not XR or food gardening, it's XR and food gardening. And I would add, in the cons in the construct of a circle of action that leaves you healthy emotionally and physically so you're not trying to do everything a lot of the time we get taken up by the the process or 
the action or, you know, the virtue that you hold, I guess, in, in oftentimes, but it really comes down to values, doesn't it? That if you have the same values, and you mentioned this earlier, the values that you hold are one of a future that allows people to be more resilient and more hopeful and to live fantastic lives when shit hits the fan, <laughs> not simply react and, and be beholden to those with power that are going to dictate in your moves and potentially, you know, make decisions for you where you're just surviving, you're just getting by and, and potentially leading to a slow death or, or continuing to to have negative impacts on the world while we've just seen the impact. So what are your values? You mentioned earlier that you, you create your circle of action. Do you ever go back even a step further and say, what is the core of my being that I really just need to live my life by? I don't know. <laughs> I think if I honestly had to answer that question, when you were talking, I was going, oh, please don't ask that. I have no idea whatsoever. I really, really honestly don't know. I could make some bullshit up that sounds, you know, Mother Teresa-like, but I think if I honestly had to answer that question, I would have to ask four or five people around me to say, what value can you see me putting out there in the, in the world? Because everyone that comes into my head to say, like, trust, openness, integrity, but there's another part of me going, that's not true. God, you don't need to do that. <laughs> so I can't answer that. I can't. For some reason, I can't answer that question. I don't know why. The fact I can't answer it is interesting in itself. But, but you sort of did by saying others, so community, having a community that knows you, I think. Yeah. It's something that you live your life by, obviously, and you've you've had and and there's obviously purpose, you know, personal identity, and then community that really people need to have to to foster love and and hope, rather than you know if you're missing one of those things, you're going to look for them in potentially dangerous places, or or you know even just miss out on those things, and you know not have as great a quality of what life as as we could. So. They're mine, I think, trying to find, you know, allow people to really experience an authentic identity somehow, have a purpose that is obviously evolving, ever evolving, but you've talked about how to harness that purpose and find the right way with that circle of action and then community, which you're building and, and doing so much more than anyone could dream of in so many ways. You're talking about 350 households now. You talked about 7,500 people visiting a small little street. You know, these type of things are to be celebrated, and I'm sure you do, as, as you suggested earlier. Yeah, most definitely. And maybe I'm listening to the word value as a different thing, but it's really important for me to feel safe and to do what I can to make other people feel safe. And I just really like working with people. I really like being the facilitator of allowing a group of people to do something together and then kind of standing back and just watching that happen going, oh, my God, look what we managed to create, you know, that's nothing. I think that's what a good teacher does. I think that's actually good teaching. And so I think that once you've sort of said I'm going to be a teacher, you don't, just because you're not in a school, you don't stop doing Just that. on that, you were a principal and you left it, but you're still in education, adult education, but education. Do you see that that as being an integral part to humanity thriving, education? I don't think you stop learning ever. And it's interesting we were talking, the other thing we were talking about last night was the New Internationalist Foundation has wonderful five essences of happiness 
hopefully I'll be able to remember them all, but one's about giving, one's about being active, one's about gratitude, one's about something else that I can't remember, but one's also about learning and the fact that you have to keep learning. So call that education, call that learning, call it whatever. When someone is learning something new all the time, that is one of the five things that leads to happiness. So this study was a meta study of a whole pile of different studies. Oh, uh, take notice. That was the other one. So give, appreciate, physical, take notice, and keep learning. So I think education happens all the time. I don't think it happens necessarily in the school walls. It happens in school walls, but I don't think it only happens there. Yeah. That curiosity that needs to be there. Do you have a practice where you do pay attention? Do you meditate? Do you do something along those lines at all or, or something that keeps you going on a more spiritual level or, or whatever we like to call it? Um, I think that I don't have something that I do every 10, you know, 10 minutes every day. I must get up and do this or, you know. We have had and continued to have a fairly structured life since COVID, which has been fantastic. And we've even now restricted visitors to our house because we get a lot of people that drop in all the time wanting to see what's going on. So we get up at seven, we milk the goats, we go for a walk and we walk down to the beach. So a good little burst of nature, come back, cup of tea, whatever volunteers are there for the day. It's, you know, distributing jobs for the day. Then we work in the garden then have a little break for a cup of tea at 11. Then I hit the books and the kind of more computer stuff that needs to be organised. Lunch at 1.30, a nap, which we do sort of as a meditation so we don't allow ourselves to go to sleep, but we lay on our backs waking each other up if either of us starts snoring. And then a bit more of whatever. So after that sort of creativity time, so my partner does music, I tend to, unfortunately, I tend to head back onto computer again too far too often dinner time and then relaxing into whatever happens in the afternoons so there's a cut there's a couple of moments there where I get bursts of of being aware and they'll sound bizarre but turning my compost my compost is very important to me I make a really good batch of compost and we have people that donate scraps to us and so it's quite a big thing so the five, ten minutes a day that I turn the compost is a really special time for just that. And milking the goat is the other time because there is nothing else you can do. You have to concentrate on that. You're doing something physical. It's pretty repetitive. She's there. You're with another person who's not, into, you know, not not a person but another being who's there with you. It's, it's kind of a, those quiet times. So rather than finding specific you know, apps or whatever that lead to that mindfulness, somehow that structure that we integrated in during COVID has allowed some of those things to happen during the day quite naturally and for me to be a bit more aware of using them in that way so that I'm not having to bring in another habit. My final question for you, Shani, is the name of this podcast, Moments of Clarity, would you like to share a moment of clarity that you've had recently, whether from this conversation or something you've done or experienced recently that you'd like to share with us today? This is going to seem a really silly one, except for perhaps to the, for the gardeners. 
But the other day I learned that when you're pruning something back, you should prune back a third of the plant and then allow those bits to grow and then prune back another third and then allow those bits to grow and then prune back another third. And I had killed a lot of the perennial herbs in our front garden or those volunteers that we had had actually killed them by just going in hard and pruning it back. And something about that, knowing that that was made such good sense and that that was going to work, and that analogy of that for, I suppose, yourself and not just cutting all your hair off all at once or not just do, trying to do everything once, but try. It's a bit like what I was talking about before. Try something, let it grow. Try the next bit, let it grow. Try the next bit, let it know. And then you're always going to have green and growth on the bush and it's never going to totally die back and have to come back from nothing. So clarity in such a sensible gardening thing to do, but clarity in the sense of kind of applying that to life more generally and your own personal care and earth care probably. Before I let you go, where can we find you if, if people want to know more about, you know, some of the stuff you've been talking about and, and your work, where can we hunt you down? Well, I'm in my bed at 16 Livingston <laughs> No, um, <laughs> but you probably don't want to find me here, actually. Um, Ecoverbia is the name of our company and our, and our spot, so there's a few ways to find us. We have a website, ecoverbia.com.au, um, and that has some information about our current project, some of the things we did in Holbert Street, a bit of information about services and stuff that we offer, um, online courses as a calendar of events there, that sort of stuff. If you're interested in a more day-to-day diary-like journaling, um, I tend to use Facebook for that. So if you look up Ecoburbia, there's there's a sustainable event in Queensland, so you have to avoid that one and try and find us. We've got a little green goat logo. And there I tend to put very non-preachy, you know, we found a chicken, chicken on the chicken on the verge. We thought it was a rooster, but it, then it laid an egg the next day. You know that kind of stuff on that. So a lot of people enjoy following the Facebook page. A bit of Tim's music's on there as well, and that's more of it. It really is a journaling of of what it is that we're up to in that kind of sustainable community building field. I'm about to post tomorrow a um, sort of view of the garden you know, what the garden's up to and take a few photos and stuff. So those are the two main ways, yeah. But we'd love to love to hear from people, anyone coming over to WA or um, anywhere, anywhere in the world really, yeah, always open to meeting new people and hearing from people, so it would be great. Thank you so much, Shani. It's honestly been a, a privilege and I've enjoyed every minute of it, even with the interruptions in, in, in the middle of that, the new world that we live in online but uh it's it was really amazing and i really value the time that you've provided me and uh i thank you no worries it's nice to chat if you enjoyed the conversation today please subscribe share with your friends and family and leave a review if you would like to contact me provide feedback 
or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.